Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. He now has a 36% approval rating. Donald Trump says, yeah, that's not too bad. Dude, it's the worst in 70 years. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. Monday, 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 July 17. Hope you had a great weekend. Here we go into a whole new week uh, with a lot going on. Healthcare on delay until uh, John McCain. Recovers from a little surgery over the weekend. Uh, that shows how tight they are. How every single vote, po- potential vote, uh, counts. Uh, no certainty that John McCain would vote for that legislation. Uh, the questions about the Russian meetings with uh, Donald Trump Jr. still resound all over Washington, D.C., all over the country. And uh, the Trump White House's latest tack is... Blame it on the Secret Service. They should never have let those people in the Trump Tower in the first place. It just shows how desperate they are getting to sink to that level. And on another front, this is another theme week, another theme week at the White House. Made in America. The big question is, will anything that Donald Trump sells or Ivanka Trump sells be made in America so far the answer is no. <laughs> we'll bring you up to date on all of that and look forward to hearing from you on Twitter at BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. We began at the box office where it was shaping up to be a war between Planet of the Apes and Spider Man. That no. was a big showdown. The Big Sick, I'm telling you, that's a movie to see. I'm not talking about what's worth seeing. I'm talking about what made the most money. War for the Planet of the Apes opened up, and it was number one at the box office. Brought in an estimated $56.5 million domestically. That was enough to beat Spider-Man Homecoming, which brought in 45.2. not a lot of money. No, not really. No, 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 not really. Not for a summer movie. No, No, you did. Did you see the Apes movie? I didn't see the Apes movie. I haven't seen it either. I did see Baby Driver over the weekend. Oh, was it good? Um, I enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. Was it good is a different question. 
but I enjoyed fun it experience. Yeah, I enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, news, news about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is going to be releasing a book in November, and we got some details this morning. Uh, Flatiron Books said that Joe Biden and his wife will be writing some books for them. But the first one will be coming out on November 14th called Promise Me, Dad, A Year of Hope, Hardship, and Purpose. It is going to be a chronicling of the year after Joe Biden's son, Bo, died after Mm -hmm. a battle with brain cancer. Joe Biden has talked very publicly about what that time meant to him. And so he is going to sort of go back and talk about that process, the grieving, the healing, and all of that will be in his book, which will be available November 14th of this year. Uh, promise me, Dad, the promise that the Bo Biden wanted was that Joe would run for president. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. Well. That's going to be yet. an interesting book. To, did, uh, has it run for president yet? Well, no, he has three times, actually. <laughs> that's, but, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and even though we are pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords and Donald Trump continues to ignore all signs pointing towards climate change, California is paving the way. A new bill would make California one of only two states that would legally require all of their energy sources to come from renewable energy. By not that far away, 20 years, I think, or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. The, the, by 2045 is when right, they want it to right. completely yeah. uh, uh, phase in, but 50% of it would be phased in by 2030 to 2026 is what they're, they're saying. So, yep. like... Go in the near future. Go California, and Jerry Brown is leading the charge. And by the way, Hawaii is the other state that's, that's going in that direction. Of course, yeah, those the two, the only two good states. That's it. <laughs> there are only two. The West Coast rules on alternative energy and many other areas as well. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it on a Monday, July 17? Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us here. It is the Bill Press Show as we start a whole new week with a whole new, well, not a whole new set of issues, actually. A lot of leftover issues uh, from last week and then a brand new one we're going to be talking about this week. We've got it covered, and it's good to see you. Hope you enjoyed uh, the weekend, had a chance to relax with friends and family, catch up on stuff, and are ready to jump into this new week with both feet into uh, more talk about Russia, more talk about health care, and into uh, Made in America, which is the theme for the Trump administration this week. We'll see how far they get with that. We are here with you on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show, of course, coast to coast. Looking at you also, coast to coast, on Free Speech TV, joining you on WCPT out in Chicago. And our podcast up, as always, check it out, check it out, our podcast, go to BillPressShow.com, and you can uh, catch up with us and follow the rest of the show all during the day. And if you sign up, you'll be getting a... Uh, our little uh, updates all during the day as well. And we're all part of the Young Turks Network. Where do we start? Let's start with the bad news. for. Well, he didn't consider it bad news, but the news is the latest uh, ABC Washington Post poll shows that uh, since uh, April, Donald Trump's approval rating has actually sunk. 
from 42%, which was bad enough, to 36%. 36% of Americans now, only 36%, now approve of the job Donald Trump is doing as president. 58% disapprove of the job he is doing as president. What is uh, surprising about that is that uh, Donald Trump uh, was not um, disheartened, was not ashamed. In fact, he tweeted out, not bad. It's not bad. 36% for this time in a, uh, in a new president's term is not bad at all. It's pretty we're in good shape. Uh, it's we're in good bad. shape. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, according to the Washington Post, that and they, the numbers do not lie, <laughs> right? Uh, this is the lowest at this point of any new president in the last 70 years. I didn't go back and see who that president was 70 years ago, but at any rate, uh, Donald Trump, when he says it's not bad, uh, yes, it is. It's pretty damn bad. And it's no wonder it's bad because they are doing such a bad job on so many fronts. Now, Donald Trump and Mike Pence both stating, though, that this is a week, this is a week, we are going to pass health care legislation. Here's Mike Pence in Washington here on uh, Friday, I think it was, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. President Trump and I are confident when the time comes as early as next week, yep. that Republicans and Senate are going to come together and they're going to move this bill forward. Well, not quite. Not quite. The vote is so tight in the Senate is actually, remember, again, the Republicans have 52 Republicans. They don't want any Democrats. They have not talked to any Democrats. They have not reached out to any Democrats to support it. Mitch McConnell has said he wants this all to be a Republican deal, exclusive Republican. So 52, they need 51, or at worst, they or best or worst, they could do 50 and have Mike Pence break the tie, which, of course, he would. They can't even get to 50. <laughs> They can't even get to 50. It really is incredible. It is. And, in fact, what's really incredible is this Mitch McConnell, who is such a master um, legislator, we are told, <laughs> apparently not. Mm. So they, 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 they pulled off a rare feat. Think about it. They took what was a lousy bill, the House health care bill, re repeal bill, and they made it even worse in the Senate. And then they took a bad Senate bill, and they made that last week even worse. So each each iteration has gotten worse and worse and worse to the point where they can't round up among themselves even 50 votes to repeal, even though, again, they've been promising it for the last 70 years. So now they're not going to vote this week. Why? And this is the ultimate irony, because John McCain senior senator from Arizona, who's 80, uh, had to have some surgery over the weekend to remove a, uh, to take care of a, a blood clot above his eye, uh, which is uh, not major surgery, they say, but, you know, any surgery when you're 80 is yeah. major, and a major, I think. And it, it, it requires cutting into the skull and getting in and taking care of this blood clot right above the eye. At any rate, he is out of action for a few days, maybe for a week. So they, they're they so tight on votes, every single vote they need, and we're not even sure McCain would vote for it, 
that they have delayed the vote until McCain comes back, which is the ultimate irony of ironies. Think about this, my friends. Okay, so they've delayed the vote in order that John McCain, who has the gold standard of health care as the United States senator, can come back to Washington and possibly vote for a bill that will take health care away from 22 million Americans. That stinks. No wonder why people hate Washington. No wonder why they hate politicians in general when you see something like that. It is outrageous, the very idea of it. At any rate, um, so what's going on with this bill? Well, one thing that went, uh, that happened over the weekend, too, is um, the nation's governors got together up in Providence, Rhode Island, and they soundly, together, Republicans and Democrats said, this is a bad bill, and we don't want anything to do with it. Asa Hutchinson, governor of Arkansas, who's expanded Medicaid, said, no way. John Kasich, governor of Ohio, who's expanded Medicaid, Republican, said, no way, as well as Democratic governors uh, across, across the country. Uh, Brian Sandoval in, uh, in Nevada saying, don't want anything to do with this legislation. The governors were told that this, this Senate bill will cut Medicaid funding in their states and remember, Medicaid's the largest health care program that existed. 72 million Americans on Medicaid. 72 million. A lot of them, of course, in red states. A lot of them Trumpers, right? The governors were told that this bill will cut Medicaid funding for the states by 27 to 36 percent. And so the states are going to be stuck with this expanded healthcare population and no federal funding to pay for it, or not, or 27 to 36% less federal funding to pay for it. Uh, it means that 15 million fewer people will be covered by Medicaid by the year 2026. So um, bad bill, bad bill. Uh, and there are, according to Susan Collins yesterday, um, she said if it happened, if the bill She's from Maine. She's a no vote. Uh, if the bill did come up today, you can't predict what's going to happen, but she says it'll be close. It would be extremely close. There are many of us who have concerns about the bill, particularly the cuts in the Medicaid program. And as I was just talking about, and Susan Collins said, uh, this, is how, this is why they need John McCain. This is how many senators are wavering. On the Senate side, I would estimate that there are about 8 to 10 Republican senators who have deep concerns. 8 to 10, imagine that. And just one final point from Susan Collins is, again, they're taking Medicaid. They are capping uh, Medicaid as it is and then, and then, and then cut, capping and cutting Medicaid, cutting the funding, cutting the benefits without without one public hearing. 
we should not be making fundamental changes in a vital safety net program that's been on the books for 50 years, the Medicaid program, without having a single hearing to evaluate what the consequences are going to be. Yeah, imagine that. It's like, un uncanny what they're doing. She talked about it there in that second clip about how many people are sort of wavering and where they landed. There's more bad news, by the way, if you still haven't made up your mind on this. Uh, Washington Post ABC News poll. Uh, which health care plan do you prefer? Obamacare, GOP replacement, or neither? Obamacare, 50%. GOP replacement, 24%. <laughs> Yeah. Neither yeah. 13%. Right. And by the way, the House— You know how hard it is to get to have on a poll like yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, it has Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. They call it Obamacare. Yeah. And ha half of Americans prefer Remember that. the health, the House health care bill, 17% of Americans yeah. that they thought was a good bill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on CNN yesterday afternoon. Some of you may have caught that. And the point I made was if I were a Republican— uh, who knows what's going to happen? Mitch McConnell may be able to get uh, to up to 50 or to 51. I hope not, but he might. But if I were a Republican, I would hope it, pa I would hope it fails. I would hope they do not get to 50. You know why? Because they're going to own it. If this passes, the Republicans own this bill. And what does that mean? They're going to own a bill that will cut 22 million Americans, take healthcare, health insurance away from 22 million Americans. It will cut Medicaid, where 72 million Americans uh, uh, and now. That's how they get their health care. It will enable people to buy crappy plans, cheap but crappy plans, basically snake oil, that they will feel, oh, good, I was able to get this health care, health insurance for my family for just uh, a total of $250, Right. And then they turn around and somebody in their family gets sick and they find out, oh, that's not covered. No, that's not covered. That's not covered. It's, it's just a con job. But that, that's the Ted Cruz amendment, by the way, which Mitch McConnell adopted. So all of those, all of those things, they will own it. And you know what? It's just got, I've made this point before. Why don't Republicans learn from recent history? In, in uh, 1992, Bill Clinton... First thing you did, we're going to do universal health care. And they went into health care in the first six months, the first year, two years of his presidency, and Democrats got their ass whipped in 2004. I mean, in 1994. In Barack Obama, right? Same thing. Uh, Barack Obama in 2009, what does he do? Jumps into health care with both feet, and what happens? Democrats got their asses handed to them in 2012 in the midterm elections. Republicans are doing the same thing. The first thing they do is to rush into health care. They should have done infrastructure first, rush into health care. And if they pass this bill, they're going to own it and they'll go into 2018 and they're going to get their asses kicked as well. So, I mean, again, as every Republican, I would say, let's hope, let's hope this doesn't pass because uh, it's definitely going to be. Uh, bad news. And if only somebody over there would come to their senses and say, you know what, what we ought to do, why don't we just do this? Instead of trying to pass this crappy bill, let's sit down with the Democrats. They're ready to deal and say, all right, what are all the parts of Obamacare we don't like? 
Let's work together to fix those parts of Obamacare we don't like. That's the solution. You know what? I said this again on CNN yesterday. They could get 85 votes that way if they did that. You know, what? because Obamacare doesn't do anything about prescription drugs, as Bernie Sanders keeps saying, let's add that in there. Obamacare does allow premiums to go up too high in some states. Let's take care of that. Maybe there are some people who are not covered because the, 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 the plans are too expensive. Let's take care of that. Fix Obamacare. Mend it. Don't end it. Work with the Democrats in a bipartisan way. That's what the American people need, and that's what the American people want, instead of Mitch McConnell trying to run his own little shop. So um, that's, that's the latest on that. I don't think they're going to get it. I hope they don't get it. Um, but uh, it just shows how thin that whole uh, support for this legislation is that they've now put it on hold yet again. Meanwhile, uh, what's up with the Russian front and the meeting at Trump Tower? You know what it is? Drip, drip, drip. And the problem is that every drip gets the Trump White House closer to the Kremlin. And I know I wasn't here Friday. I know you talked about this with John Allen on Friday. So the latest, of course, is uh, Donald Trump Jr. who goes on and says, that's it. I've told everything there is about the Russian meeting. We, I told you everybody who was there. I told you what we talked about. I showed you the emails. That's it. There's nothing more. And damn it if the next day we don't find out. Ah, <laughs> uh, there were uh, two other people in the meeting I forgot to tell you about, mm, including that Russian lobbyist. Yeah. Uh, and the what's so pathetic is what an amateur operation. They not only <laughs> covered this up and lied about the fact Remember, they said, everybody said, Mike Pence, Kellyanne Conway, Sean Spicer, Reince Priebus, Donald Trump Jr., and Donald Trump himself, for a year, said there were absolutely no contacts at all, no meetings at all between anybody in the Trump operation and anybody from Russia on any topic. It's a whole great big fat lie. And now that they're caught... What are they doing? They come up with one lame excuse after another to the point that it's almost ludicrous. Jay Sekulow, they sent him out there again yesterday, the president's attorney, on five different shows. Uh, He did all five shows, and he didn't make any sense at all. First of all, he keeps making this point. Okay, look. Well, and, and again, notice how they changed the goalpost, right? First of all, it was, there was never any meeting, and anybody who talks about the fact that there was a meeting, that we had any meetings with Russian, it's fake news. Well, now they say, oh, no, no, there was a meeting, but here's Jay Sekulow. There was a meeting, but we didn't break the law. The meeting in and of itself, of course, as I've said before, is not a violation of the law, but I think it's important to understand that as counsel to the president, the president was not aware of the meeting and did not participate in it. All right, two things right there. Number one, the point is not whether it was legal or illegal. First of all, he doesn't know that. That's up to Robert Mueller to find out. Um, Accepting money, accepting any assistance from a foreign government in an American election is against the law, by the way. It is against the law. So it may or may not have been illegal, but that's not the point. The point is they held the meeting. The point is they lied about it for a year. So don't, don't try to change the goalposts here. You told us there were no meetings. Now there was a great big fat meeting at Trump Tower. Number two, the idea that Donald Trump 
Jr., who gets an email from a contact with the a go-between, this Rob Goldstone, with the president's former business partner in Moscow, the try, guy he tried to build a hotel, a Trump Tower with in Moscow. And he gets an email saying that this guy's got some dirt on Hillary Clinton and he wants to send this attorney over to meet with you to give you this dirt on Hillary Clinton. And that Donald Trump Jr. does not tell his father about that before the meeting or after the meeting, or that Jared Kushner doesn't tell his father-in-law, I find that impossible to believe. And I'll tell you what, why should we believe it? They've lied about everything else. Exactly. Right? Why, I mean, Jay Sekulow says the father said he didn't know about the meeting, so therefore we have to believe him. No, you can't believe it. This is the same guy who says that 5 million people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton. This is a guy who says that they bust people from Massachusetts to New Hampshire to vote, right? Or this is a guy who says that he had the biggest crowd in world history at his inauguration. Period. Why, why should, period. Why should we believe him about anything? Uh, it's crazy. So then, so that's lame excuse number one. Not illegal. Name, lame excuse number two, the president didn't know about it. Let's go to lame excuse number three. Here's Jay Sekulow. All right, well, let's blame it on, let's find somebody to blame it on. I've wondered why the, the, the Secret Service, if this was nefarious, why did the Secret Service allow these people in? The president had Secret Service protection at that point. Can you believe it? I mean, how low do they go? They're going to blame the people who are there to take a bullet for the president. And they blame him for saying for setting up this meeting. And there's one thing, first of all, just disgusting in and of itself. But there's also something very, very wrong with this, Jay Sekulow. Donald Trump Jr. at the time was not under Secret Service protection. End of story. Period. Period. Stop. Right? Right. He was not a, as they call it, a protectee. So therefore, the Secret Service didn't have anything to do with people who had meetings with Donald Trump Jr. He has protection now. He's had protection since his father became president, but not before. And so meetings with him were not, uh, were, were not protected. Secondly, if they did, if, if they vetted any, or they didn't, so they didn't vet people, right, for meeting like that. All they, if they'd done anything, they would have checked to make sure they were not bringing a weapon into Trump Tower. But the main point is, he was not protected by the Secret Service at the time. The Secret Service, and they put out a statement to this effect, they had nothing to do with people that Donald Trump scheduled a meeting with. Donald Trump Jr. scheduled a meeting with. But it just shows, again, how um, how desperate the White, House is, the White House is. They've been caught with their pants down. Look, they said there were no meetings. They lied about it for a year, and they got caught. That's exactly what's going on. And now they're just trying. It's, it, I, I heard David Gergen say this the other night on CNN, that this is the most bungled cover-up in history. They, they're not even good at covering up. They can't cover up. No. They can't cover up. No. Part of running a successful cover-up operation means doing some things that you don't want to do or doing some things smartly and having at least, at the, at the very least, having a coherent story that everybody can stick to Throughout the whole cover-up, uh, and they yeah. can't do that. It also um, and it also entails keeping your mouth shut, <laughs> that too. which neither daddy or son could can do. Can't do it. Uh, no. Uh, it as uh, Adam Schiff again, ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, whom we quote often said, um, "This 
may not in and of itself be collusion, but boy, it sure looks like it. This is about as clear evidence you could find of intent by the campaign to collude with the Russians, to get useful information from the Russians. Yep. No confusion. It's collusion, uh, to uh, paraphrase uh, Kellyanne Conway. Uh, now, we don't have to worry. Here's a nice thing. We don't have to worry about that this week at all. We don't have to worry about Russia. We don't have to worry about health care. You know why? Because this week, according to the White House, we're just going to be talking about made in America, which, frankly, I welcome. First of all, because I believe in made in America. I always try to buy products that are made in America. I think that's a, I think that's a great goal, to make them and to buy them, products made in America. Uh, and why I'm so happy we're talking about made in America because I would hope that message is not, does not come from the White House so much as I hope that message is heard at the White House because the two biggest violators of made in America are Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump. Remember, this has been well documented and the Washington Post gets into it again this morning. You know, from Donald Trump, you can buy Donald Trump still today as he's president. They're still hawking this stuff. Um, You can buy ties, suit, Donald Trump ties, suits, shirts, eyeglasses. Mm Mm-hmm. The shirts are made in China, Bangladesh, Honduras, Vietnam, and South Korea. Uh, Sport coats are made in India. Uh, Suits are made in Mexico and China. Uh, Their eyeglasses are made in China. They also have a Donald Trump line of furniture. Uh, The Donald Trump furniture is made in (laughs) Turkey, Germany, and China. Made in America. Yeah, right. Now, how about Ivanka Trump? Yes, okay, let's not miss the point here, is that, yes, Ivanka Trump still has a line of jewelry and accessories. She's still hawking this stuff as she's got a job in the White House, first daughter, right? Uh, her, All of her uh, products exclusively made by foreign manufacturers. Bangladesh, China, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Have you so, made in America week? Yes. So the two biggest violators of made in America are Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump. And when the White House is asked whether they're going to be included, if they're going to make any announcement that their stuff that they're selling is going to be made in America, uh, the White House basically said, uh, we'll have to get back to you on that. How, how dumb do they think we are? They think right? we're pretty dumb. Right. What? They clearly think we're pretty dumb. What hypocrisy. I mean, yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. It's the message from Made in America. On the health care front, uh, one member of Congress, one former member of Congress now, uh, has a very powerful reason of her own uh, to hope that uh, the Senate does not pass this health care bill, the hope that we do not throw 22 million Americans off of uh, health insurance. Uh, she is Donna Edwards, former congresswoman from uh, Maryland, and she is a good friend of the program. She'll be joining us right after this quick break. Collusion now. Illusion, delusion, yes. I just thought we'd have some 
fun with words. Uh, Sesame's Grover Word of the Day, perhaps, Sean. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Here we go now on a Monday, July uh, 17, uh, uh, The Bill Press Show. Good to be with you, and thank you so much for joining us. One of the most uh, powerful parts of uh, the debate over the health care legislation is when those people who's who themselves have been impacted or their families have come forward to tell their stories. One of the most powerful stories we've heard recently it comes from a good friend of ours, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards, who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post last week about her own situation. And uh, Congresswoman Donna Edwards joins us in studio this morning. Hi, Donna. It's Hi. Nice. Good to see you. Great to be here. Before we get to that, I have to, uh, a little related, you know, the president was in France last week. Uh, and uh, he, in his typical style, uh, told the first lady of France, basically, hey, babe, man, you really looking good. So uh, over the weekend, a uh, down in Australia, a reporter by the name of Barry Cassidy asked the foreign minister of Australia, her name is Julie Bishop, how she might react to that. I just thought you'd enjoy this. He, uh, he met the French president's wife, Brigitte Macron, and he said, you're in such good shape, such good physical shape, beautiful. If he said that to you, would you be flattered or offended? I'd be taken aback, <laughs> I think. Um, it's a rather interesting comment to make. Um, I wonder if uh, she could say the same of him. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> damn. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. What would you say if he said something like that to you? Well, it, it's just so inappropriate. I mean, it really is. And why the president of the United States feels that with every woman that he seems to encounter, he has to make a comment about her physical condition and yeah. shape and her hair and all the all these things. I just think it's really inappropriate. It's embarrassing, frankly. I mean, you can hear from the Australian uh, yeah. prime minister and um, and from others in the commentary, it really is embarrassing. And as a woman, and as a working woman in the 21st century, um, it really is like 17th century behavior. It, you know, it's like the old, like the Miss Universe guy, right, who's judging every woman on the meat rack, just about, right? I mean, even his daughter. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, about yeah, it's really. I mean, it really is. I, I just don't even know what to say about that anymore. Yeah. Um, I have a grown son who's 29 years old, and I don't think that he goes into his workplace. I know he doesn't go into his workplace and make comments about women's physical appearance. It's unprofessional. It's it's just unbecoming the president of the United States. Frankly, it's just unbecoming a man. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we forget, we just sort of skimmed over the fact that last month he had that interaction with the <laughs> Irish female Irish reporter in the Oval Office where he was on the uh, call with the Prime Minister and there was a f female journalist there and Trump looks at her and says, we have all this beautiful Irish press. She has a nice smile on her face, so I'm sure she treats you well. Right to her face in the Oval Office. That's how, that's how he views women. 
Yeah. Are oh. they being beautiful to him? And with the, you know, with the uh, French um, president's wife, I mean, he's the president of France is there. His wife is there and he mm-hmm. still does it. So yeah. he's just inappropriate. And, um, you know, I, I want us to focus on how they're trying to butcher our health care system and, um, you know, why I, it is that he's fighting um, putting sanctions on Russia for interfering in our election. Right. And and those cuts and, and to Obamacare, or that repeal of Obamacare, would impact American women m- m- mostly, right, in terms of the population. Tell us about your own story. You, uh, the op-ed piece that you wrote in the in the Washington Post last week. So you were you've been diagnosed with MS, uh, and how did you find out about it? How long have you known this? I have a year ago, June twenty second. I remembered the day really well because it was the day of the House sit-in. And I was sitting mm. in um, on the on the floor of the house. Um, in fact, the iconic picture that always gets uh, sent out is one that was taken from my phone and that I tweeted at. Oh no, really? Yes. Yeah. And um, and then four hours after that, I got a call from the house physician who called me in and said that I'd been diagnosed with with MS. And it was a complete shock to me because I really I had been running and had some symptoms when I was running, and I was convinced that I had either pinched a nerve or torn a tendon or any of the other kinds of sports injuries that I've had over the years, MS was actually the last thing I expected. And so for this last year, I mean, I've told obviously a couple of friends and and family members, but um, I've, you know, gotten things under control and managed. But dealing with this healthcare system has been quite an eye-opener for me as someone who now has a chronic illness. Um, The astronomical cost of, of the prescription medication that I take the number of um, office visits that I have to make, the specialists that I have to see um, to manage my condition so that I can continue to live very productively. And um, I watched this healthcare debate. I was on the road in my RV, you know (laughs) this, and talking to people about their conditions. And they were sharing with me uh, their heart conditions and diabetes and kidney disease and, you know, any manner of things. And I shared with them the fact that I had MS. In fact, it was easier to talk to strangers about it than it was mm. to talk to friends and family. And I listened to this debate over this period of time, and I just became incensed with the way that people with pre-existing conditions were being described as, you know, people who had somehow done things that were unhealthy and had not lived productive lives. And that was not me. And I knew that my colleagues knew that that was not me as well. So I decided to write this letter uh, to them in the Washington Post. Uh, to tell them that I had MS and I had a pre-existing condition that if this health care bill, either the House or the Senate version, went into effect, um, that I'm pretty convinced that I would not have health care anymore. Right. And you, you, you appreciate the fact that, that with all your struggles dealing with your issue and, uh, and managing your health care, that as a former member of Congress, you had a good health care plan, right? Well, I did. Well, and think I, of the all those people who don't, right, or for the first time were able to get health care, health insurance for their families under Obamacare. That's right. And it's out the window. And I was under the Affordable Care Act because when we passed the Affordable Care Act as Democrats, there was a provision in there that required members of Congress to go under the Affordable Care Act. And so that's that was my health care mm. during the time that I was in Congress, and I got great health care. Uh, I had to pay the premium, obviously, and the deductibles, but I got great right. health care. And now I've transitioned to COBRA coverage because I'm no longer employed. 
um, the payment amount has doubled. I pay eight hundred, about eight hundred dollars a month um, for my COBRA coverage. It ends on June twenty-eight in June twenty eighteen, and as a result, I will have to then buy healthcare on the private market or go into the um, ACA is what I had planned to do. Um, but if they get rid of it, and certainly if there are you know, limitations placed on pre-existing conditions, I am convinced that I will not be able to afford health care. And I'm like millions of other Americans around the country, and I wanted to be able to tell my story because I think it's representative of what so many millions of Americans are facing with the prospect of being thrown into a high-risk pool for pre-existing conditions. I, you know, it's just sort of like all of the sick people in one uh, mm-hmm. Place and the reason the insurance companies have said this is a bad idea is because that will drive costs up. And so, if I think eight hundred dollars a month is a lot, oh my gosh, just wait. Yeah, yeah. How many people? How many Americans could afford eight hundred dollars a month just for for health care? And as you say, it's going to get worse. I mean, under this bill on, on pre-existing conditions, it's interesting. Um, uh, uh, Jamie, if we have Tom Price, who's the secretary of HHS, I don't know how these people can can say this stuff uh, and sleep at night, but he insists, this is their goal, and now he's selling, obviously, the Senate health care legislation. That nobody falls through the cracks, that we're able to provide coverage for every single uh, American that uh, uh, for, for their physicians and their, and their care. This bill does just the opposite. Right. Well, it does, and um, that is just a plain lie. So I, I'm tired of saying this is an untruth or a misstatement. Yeah. It's a lie. Uh, the fact is that the Senate bill uh, would create two separate pools of people, uh, healthy people who could buy, you know, a really cheap plan. Which, and, which doesn't cover anything. Which doesn't cover anything. And then sick people who have to buy a really expensive plan to cover their care. The reality is I could have bought a healthy plan in May of 2016 because I was healthy. I rode my bike. I ran. I played softball and football. I was very active. And then in June 2016, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. If I had had a healthy people plan Mm -hmm. in May, I would have been out of luck in June. And what really is horrible in this um, Senate bill is that if you buy one of those healthy people plans and you get sick, it's not considered having had continuous coverage. And so you actually have to wait six months then. Well, think if you have cancer and you have to wait six months before you get care. You can go bankrupt in the process. You know, people are liquidating their homes and they're going into bankruptcy, all to pay for health care costs. And this is ridiculous. And so um, I hope that Americans all across the country, um, particularly in these key states in Ohio, in West Virginia, in Nevada, Um, that they call their members of Congress, their senators, and say, please do not pass this bill because it will devastate uh, Americans, millions of Americans. Well, one other thing they say, of course, is that, no, we're not going to, we're going to leave coverage for pre-existing conditions. It is in this legislation. We're not doing anything. But then at the same time, they give states the option of opting out, right? Or the option of saying, well, we'll allow uh, um, coverage uh, plans to be sold in our state that 
don't cover pre-existing, that don't include pre-existing conditions. Right. I mean, one of the reasons and, that And there's the, no doubt, right? The states will take it, some states will take advantage well, of that. Well, they will waive those provisions yeah. because they're getting less money from the federal government because the Medicaid expansion has been uh, cut back and will be cut out. And so they won't have the money to be able to, um, uh, to have coverage the way uh, that we do under the Affordable Care Act. And it is the reason that the insurers, the hospitals... Um, that uh, the AARP, that um, patients and doctors, all every, all of those people oppose um, the provisions in the Senate bill and the, in the House bill. And so if all of those people, and I never thought I'd be on the same page with the insurers, but I am <laughs> yeah. because they recognize that it's it would be unsustainable if they passed the, the Senate bill. Right. I mean, it, it, that's the essence of insurance, right? You pool everybody together. And so those people who need help that year get help and those who don't, fortunately, but they're putting their money. It's, yeah, if you put all the people who need help in one pool and then all the young, healthy people in another, it doesn't work, right? right? It is unsustainable. And any, uh, whether it's Secretary Price <laughs> or Mitch McConnell, anybody who is saying that people will be covered if they have pre-existing conditions, that they will be covered... Um, if they have, you know, extraordinary medical needs, they are lying. And so this Senate bill would would really devastate families across the country. It would devastate me. I mean, I'm not working now, and so I'm actually paying my health care out of my out of my savings. Um, and I don't have any prospects that uh, it with the Senate bill that I would have health care in June 2018. Well, uh, you mentioned just briefly, just touched on Medicaid. Because um, I guess the ultimate fallback position for a lot of people is Medicaid. I think as if I just saw the other day, 72 million Americans on uh, Medicaid. And again, they say, well, we don't touch Medicaid. Yeah, but um, governors were told this weekend in Providence, Rhode Island, that the fe- cuts, the federal government cuts to states will be anywhere in the neighborhood of 27 to 36 percent less money going to Medicaid. Which means states well, won't be able to. States won't have the money to supplement that, right? Well, I look at a state. It. I look at a state like West Virginia. My good friend uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito is the senator from West Virginia, and she's on the fence. Her state, I think, something like seventy mm. percent of their population is um, is covered under Medicaid, and if you think of a, a cutback of a third to um, to more in Medicaid. That will devastate their entire state. And so, um, and I know that she's very uh, thoughtful about these things, and um, and I hope that people are going to look at that. Have you, you know? talked to her? Uh, I haven't. Um, you know, one of the things is on <laughs> specific legislation, guess what? I'm prohibited from lobbying right now uh, because I just came out of the, um, oh. out of the Congress. Oh. I have a one-year, I guess, one-year prohibition on lobbying. So I wrote this letter, though, because it's not about calling out one senator mm-hmm. or another, but it's about saying to them, you know me, and if this can happen to me, it's happening to millions of our, your constituents across the country. And so please take that into consideration. And, you know, let's start over. There are things that we know need to be changed with uh, the Affordable Care Act, with Obamacare. Well, let's sit down and work on those things. There are things like, for example, um, making sure that we encourage more young people to go into the system. Well, maybe we need to figure out incentives that encourage them to go into the system so that we expand the pool 
of, of people and lower uh, coverage, we can negotiate prescription drugs. I was just going to add that, right. My, mm-hmm. pres- my prescription um, for my MS prescription cost about $73,000 a year. God. <laughs> the same drug, same manufacturer in Europe, $7,000 a year. And so I know that there's room to negotiate that, um, <laughs> you know. And you is know, and MS ever, is a difficult yeah. disease because it only affects about 400,000 Americans across the country. And so, you know, it's really clear it's one of the more expensive chronic conditions to uh, to treat because one lives with MS. One goes to work and you know goes about your daily routine. I'm riding my bike every day, um, but I do have this chronic condition and I need to manage it. And so we can negotiate prescription drugs. Um, and that would do a tremendous amount to bring out-of-pocket costs down uh, for um, for Americans. Uh, the other thing that we can do is get rid of that silly Cadillac tax. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever because then you're actually, you know, taxing a pool of people for having good health care, mm-hmm. health care coverage. And so we know that there are things that can be done. We need to make sure that we have more insurers in some of these markets, um, a Kaiser Family Foundation uh, report was done. I think it was released last week that said that about 25,000 people um, are without any insurer or provider in their area at all. So we need to make sure that we fix that. But let's not throw the baby out with the, you know, with the bathwater. I think it's possible to do that as Republicans and Democrats. And so let's just like put this um, Senate bill to bed, um, sink it. And then get started on something that really is going to make a difference for the health care for Americans. Well, if you hear uh, a John Cornyn or a Mitch McConnell, they have said, oh, we have to get these votes because otherwise we'd be forced to work with the Democrats. <laughs> I mean, what, what you just outlined is what the, where they ought to start, should have started, right, is, okay, we all agree that the ACA is not perfect. Even the Democrats will say, and God knows I've been saying that from the very beginning, there's a lot, Bernie Sanders, there's a lot that just, they're none, it doesn't cover everybody. Prescription drugs are not included. Some states, the premiums, you can go too high by some. Anyhow, you can fix, but work on fixing what's wrong with Obamacare and then have a plan that you could get Republicans and Democrats to support. Well, and I think that there are a number of Republicans and Democrats, frankly, who want to do that, who are ready and willing uh, to do that, I heard Susan Collins from Maine yep. over the weekend, yep. and she has uh, she has said that. And so, I think we have a real <laughs> opportunity here to do something great uh, for the American public, and we have to take advantage of that opportunity. You know, you look at um, you look at healthcare, and healthcare is something that's very personal. And so, everybody has a, a, a story, and they know their own healthcare. They know what works and what doesn't work, and we need to learn from the American people. And when I was out traveling, and I talked to people mostly Republicans, frankly, in RV parks all across the country. And they weren't talking about their health care as Democrats and Republicans. Mm-mm. They were talking about their health care as working people, as Americans, as people who are paying out of pocket, um, who, you know, prospectively are losing their livelihoods because they have to pay so much in, in health care costs. That's where we need to start. Yeah, I keep coming back to what you said about the, the, the cost of the drugs for your treatment, $73,000 a year. I mean, that's more money than a lot of Americans make, period, right? Well, it is. And right now, it's more money than I make. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, right. Yeah. You know, so but, what do people do who, who don't have savings that they can count on? 
What, where, where, you know what they do? They sell their homes. They go into bankruptcy. They apply for uh, disability. They apply for Medicaid. Um, you know, we're forcing we're people. Yeah, and we for, we're forcing people into doing things and altering their lives in ways that are actually not productive, um, in order to get health care. Or you know what? They forego health care at all. Mm. And um, you know, and I've heard since my op-ed was published, I have heard from just thousands, literally thousands of people by email, by Twitter, by Facebook posts um, who are saying to me, thank you very much for speaking out about this because look at what happened to me. And they're describing. And, you know, I feel badly because I'm in a relatively good position um, if one can be in a good position like this. But I yeah. am and I have more capacity and, and resources right now. Um, but some people don't have that. And so I hope I've given voice to those people and that the senators are hearing that. Right. Uh, boy, boy, I hope so, too. And I don't know how I don't know how they they could not hear it. So we're, we have a situation now. And I don't want to make this personal for, to him, but they've delayed everything um, for John McCain. I mean, first of all, that must indicate that they're pretty tight on the votes over there, right? Well, it, it is. I mean, this vote is really by one. Um, and so I think two senators, have already, uh, Senator Rand Paul and Senator Susan Collins, have already said that they plan to vote against the motion to proceed. And let's be clear, this is not just a procedural motion. The motion to proceed is the vote on the bill. Um, and so people should know that when they're calling their senators if they say, well, I might vote on the procedural but motion, yeah, but right. no, that's just garbage. Um, and so it really is one vote. But Senator McCain is having a health care issue of his own right now, and he's being treated. And I, you know, I wish him a speedy recovery. And I'm glad that he's being treated because he has health insurance. And um, and he was able to apparently catch his condition, I think, in a routine checkup because mm-hmm. he has health insurance. And pretty, you know what? pretty damn good health insurance. Yeah. Too. yeah. Right. And one of the one of the things that happens uh-huh. in the um, under the Affordable Care Act is that it covers things like preventive uh, checkups and screenings, so that you can catch these things early, so that they don't become chronic, and so that you don't die. Yeah, but not those Ted Cruz plans. Well, those, those Ted Cruz cheapo plans they won't they won't include that. Won't include uh, prenatal. Won't include maternity care. Won't include. Uh, God knows what else, right? right. And, and we're going back to a time where um, things like being a woman, simply being a woman, is having a pre-existing conditions where the insurance companies could rate you based on your gender, based on your age. Um, and so we'll go back we'll go backwards to a time of discrimination in the healthcare system where some people pay extraordinarily high costs for very innocuous kinds of uh, kinds of reasons. And so, I mean, the Ted Cruz thing, it should be dead on arrival. And I'll tell you, the reason that they're delaying as well is because this Congressional Budget Office score Mm. is going to be bad. Um, And they know that it's going to be bad, and they're trying to mitigate the harm. And it's one of the reasons they wanted to separate scoring the Ted Cruz uh, amendment from the bill, because that amendment is horrible. As I said, everybody in the health insurance industry, and including patients, Thinks it's a bad idea. It was getting ripped to shreds on Friday. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. I, 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 yeah, there are hospitals. Me. I mean, associ- every healthcare association, any professionals, all of them. Yeah, and, and just going out and saying unprecedented things about this of what what it would look like if this were to go through. Yeah.
And what does it mean for, uh, and Susan Collins made this point over the weekend, Senator Susan Collins. Um, so we're, we're going to gut Medicaid, basically, and force this bill through without one public hearing. Well, it no. does, yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary because I was there during the Affordable Care Act when we passed it, and there were dozens of, of hearings. Um, we spent over a year really marking up and, and negotiating and navigating the bill. It was an open amendment uh, process. Um, it, you know, it was real, and it was at a time when, for example, the condition, the amendment that allowed um, that required members of Congress to be included mm-hmm. in the Affordable Care Act. I think that that was a Republican amendment that was accepted. And now this legislation, both in the House and the Senate, exempts members of Congress. And so I say, if it's not good enough for them, it's not good enough for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Donna, thank you so much for coming in. And thank you for being who you are and speaking out as loudly and clearly as you can and powerfully as you have. Um, and good luck with your struggle. And let's hope that somebody's people over there are listening to millions of Americans like you. Thank this you. is personal. Thank you. Right? And it is important. And they've got to do the right thing. Well, I'm going on my bike ride. So thanks. Hey. All right. <laughs> go for it. All right. Don Edwards. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Latest poll, Donald Trump, his approval rating has sunk from 42% down to now 36%. But Donald Trump says, eh, it's not too bad. Dude, it's the worst in 70 years for any president at this time in his term. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Monday, July 17, the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., uh, fresh from the Women's Open and at Bedminster uh, Golf Course, uh, owned by Donald Trump himself. The president is back in town, and this is Made in America Week at the White House. We'll see how well that theme does. Uh, and right there covering it every day will be uh, Jordan Fabian, covers the White House for The Hill. Uh, stopped by on his way to work this morning. Hello, Jordan. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Bill. It's going to be an interesting week, right? Absolutely. Yeah. As always. We're not going to talk about Russia. We're not going to talk about health care. We're just going to talk about <laughs> made in America. Right? We'll see how that works. Right? Uh, absolutely. Anyhow, good to have you with us today. Yes, uh, the health care bill is on hold, as we were just discussing, with uh, former Congresswoman uh, Donna Edwards uh, on hold while John McCain recovers from uh, surgery. Uh, the latest take on the Russian meeting is that damn Secret Service, God, if they had only done their job and not let these people come into Trump Tower, there would not have been any meeting, or they might have met somewhere else. Who knows? 
Uh, we'll take it all, uh, look at it all, uh, plus uh, other things on the president's agenda with Jordan Fabian here from the Hill and with you. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Are you ready to say Senator Caitlyn Jenner? It's not official, but Caitlyn Jenner says that she is... Kid Kid Rock and Caitlyn Jenner. It's a match made in heaven. It's a hard pass. Yeah, right? (laughs) Caitlyn Jenner said that she is considering a potential run for public office in California. She sat down with... John Katz, uh, how do you say Katz? The, the Katz show, the guy that ran for governor. It's the Katz Roundtable that they do at AM Seven. Yeah. So uh, she spoke with him and said that uh, she would run as a Republican if she was going to run. But that's as far as we got. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger. But made it's it. something that she'd been thinking about. <laughs> Jenner Rock 2024. Ooh, man, can you imagine? All right, well, it's a shit sandwich. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously, man. Here is a story of Barry. Barry from Wilmington, Delaware. Barry is a pet cat that belonged to the Reddick family in Wilmington, Delaware. He got out of a broken back door last weekend. Barry traveled 60 miles before he was found. He was reunited with his owners late last week. 60 miles for the cat. And they found him and put him back together. That's a good story. Barry as an indoor cat had never really gone outside at all. His owners were very concerned. But uh, the story has has a happy ending. Everybody's happy. Everybody's reunited. Feeling good. Well, you know, this is the personal story to me because I know our cat, not our cat, our neighborhood cat, the neighborhood cat, the was, community might as well be your cat was relo- might as well was relocated to Bethesda Ooh. Uh, yesterday. Another family they adopted him, but I am convinced that in a matter of a week, JJ will be back on Capitol Hill. From Bethesda. Yeah, Bethesda's not is not sixty miles away like this cat. That's, so, that's pretty uh, close. Anybody in Washington out there, Connecticut Avenue, if you see this uh, orange tabby cat heading my way, this, he knows what he's doing. Let him go. <laughs> and one final story. Bethesda's a lot closer than sixty that's what miles. I'm saying it's a it's a pretty easy yeah. jaunt for a cat. Yeah. One final story. We here in America love us some bacon. As a matter of fact, uh, we love it so much that there is a pork belly shortage. The Wall Street Journal says that the price of pork belly is up 80% this year. 80%. Because we're eating too much damn bacon. I don't buy the shortage nonsense. There's a shortage of something every year, All the time, right? Last year was a lime shortage. Uh, That's right. There was an avocado shortage a couple years ago. We're going to be fine. It's fine. You know what? It's an excuse to raise prices. There you go. Yeah, it is. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. All right. But uh, they really Thanks, Trump. Trump's America, we're paying 80% more for bacon. They really cut into the bacon supply. That is bad news. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Well, what do you know on a Monday, July 17? Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. The Bill Press Show live from our nation's capital, uh, trying to keep up with the news of the day, uh, not only here in Washington, around the country and around the globe. Our job is to tell you what's going on. You tell uh, Your job, tell us what it all means to you, what you think about it, you know how to do so. Go on Twitter. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We're coming to you live coast to coast on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech 
TV. Good to see you there as part of uh, the uh, Dish Network and DirecTV. And also out in WCPT, in Chicago on WCPT, everybody in Chicagoland looking good today here in studio with us. Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent for The Hill. So, Jordan, what about this um, 36%? Something to brag about. (laughs) Donald Trump did. Said, not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, it's obviously a very, very low number for a president this early, and it's going to have implications for the health care effort, for tax reform. If Republicans in Congress who are sitting on the sidelines on health care aren't afraid of, of this president because he's only got 36% support of the public, that's going to limit his ability to wield the bully pulpit and try to get votes on his side. So, you know, it's a, it's an, it's a low number, but it has a lot of consequences for a lot of different debates. Right. Uh, 58% disapprove of the job the president's doing. 36% is roughly his base, isn't it? Is that- yeah, I would say like around the 30 to 40 percent range. That's that's where we've seen his this hard base uh, stand throughout his presidency, and and really even during the election when he he wasn't very popular either. Right, right. So I mean that's that's where it's been. It's been it's fluctuated a little bit. It was 42 percent in April. Now it's 36. So uh, it's it's been in that in that range. And a lot of his statements and policies and things that they do seem to be all geared around keeping that base happy, right? That's right. And look at what this this theme week they're doing this week. They're tr- they're yeah. They're focusing on trade and you know, domestic manufacturing and all these issues, all these economic issues that he kept hammering on during the election that appear appealed uh to white working class voters. So, uh you look at the Paris climate accord pulling out of that. That was a base play. Uh you know, moving directly into Obamacare appeal, that's a base play. So, yes, and pretty much everything he's done thus far is to please that base and keep that solidified heading into the midterm elections. All right. Well, you um, started, uh, or you mentioned, so let's start there with the theme week. Um, it's like theme park, theme week. They've tried this before. Uh, other themes they've rolled out and then um, weren't always successful, let's say, in keeping the focus of the media on that theme in many ways because they went off and did other stuff that captured the news. But so if it's made in America, um, I did a little checking this morning on um, made in America, things made in America by Don, that Donald Trump sells and Ivanka Trump sells in the, in their line. So uh, will there, according to, this was the Washington Post, Donald Trump's sell shirts, right? The Donald Trump shirts are made in China, Bangladesh, Honduras, Vietnam, and South Korea. Sport codes made in India. You can go down the list. Ivanka's products are exclusively made in Bangladesh, China, Indonesia, or Vietnam. Um, are they going to make a big announcement about where their pro- the products that they sell or manufacture? <laughs> <laughs> That's the it, answer, it, isn't it? Right, exactly. I mean, <laughs> this is the thing, you know, the... Uh, and this was a problem during the election, too, is when he kept hitting on this, that he'd get grief for making all this stuff overseas. But obviously he won the election and uh, it didn't seem to hurt him then. Maybe it will hurt him now. But look, I think the broader point about these theme weeks is that look, they, try and do, they, they keep trying to refocus attention on their agenda. But they do things and say things, particularly the president and his Twitter account, that get in the way. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> but it, in this one particular area, yes, they've got a you know this this internal problem, shall we? And say, I'm sure right? this won't be the last time we hear about it this week. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but the idea almost to me that they would venture into this knowing that they've got this Achilles heel, I find stunning. Right? That, yeah. That well, would... you know, there's not a lot of. Uh, I don't think they really. I mean, they probably know it, but they just don't care. I mean, they. This yeah. is the message they have, and they're going to put it out, and that's it. What? So. so maybe this will come up at the uh, briefing today. Uh, number one, it's uh, on the East Coast now, uh, ten minutes after eight. Do we know whether or not there is a briefing today? No, they've been telling us uh, recent we, in recent weeks the day of what the plan is for the briefing, and in fact, all of last week, the, so the president did a press conference last week in France. But over the White House, they were all off camera and all with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And it seems like there's been this shift in the last couple of weeks where Sarah has basically taken over Sean Spicer's job as press secretary. Without, and it's just without an announcement. Without an announcement. Yes. Right. It does seem that way. That's what I was going to ask you about. So, and you're right. Um, yeah, when was the last time that Spicer did a press briefing? It's got to be. Uh, wow. Uh, so what? definitely not last week. Maybe no. the week before that. He, maybe. Maybe. Um, I don't, <laughs> oh. we just sort of like, we just sort of like just moved on past the fact that he's not there. Well, yeah, the, the White House didn't announce like any change. So people just kind of, right. you know, and they're not putting them on television anymore. So they're less of this, they're less of an event. So this kind of flew under the radar. Right. Yes. Right. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So the, the, the practice now has become, which is why I asked the question, as also one who goes to the briefings as often as I can, that they, they'll say, uh, instead of telling us the day before, they'll say the briefing schedule will be announced tomorrow morning by 9 o'clock or 9.30 or something. And and then they've been getting later in the afternoon. Um, they're with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, not with Sean Spicer, as you just pointed out, and off camera, not on camera. Why Why that? Because for a while the president was saying, why would I change Sean Spicer? Look at the ratings he gets in the afternoon. Yeah. And it's true. Those press briefings were getting bigger ratings than ever before. I think it's two things. One, they it became such a spectacle, and, and Trump really doesn't like anyone being the center of attention except for himself, and they became such a spectacle, and I think he doesn't like that. And, and the other thing is that now that the Russian investigation has become more serious, they are very careful i, I want to say the, the spokespeople about answering certain questions so the fewer questions they answer they feel like they want to kind of detract the attention away from that don't put it on television get the attention off the russia stuff make sure that they're not putting themselves in a position where they're talking about the investigation that they might not get swept up in it themselves right uh now you and i are both members of the white house correspondents association correct that's right all right, so what would happen if um, we all showed up at the briefing and turned the cameras on? Anyhow, I think that would be a wonderful idea. That would be great. I would love. Yeah. No, I, I mean, why not? I, I, I had the same thought. Like, like I, Jim Acosta is doing a very, very, very good job. But when Jim Acosta, you know, will tweet out a picture of his socks and say, "Well, they won't let us turn the cameras on to the second show," you can turn those cameras on. Turn the camera on. That's the White House behind me. The White House. Like, turn the camera on and let's see what happens. Um, Hunter. Hunter Walker. Hunter Walker. 
made a point at the White House Correspondents' Reception meeting uh, last Monday. I don't think you were able to make it. But, no, I wasn't able to. But get anyhow, there. he said, you know, let's just collectively, uh, why don't we all get there and then everybody just yeah. hold up their phone. Yeah, what are they going to do? Everybody, yeah. Just all agree. Hold up their phone and, and, and record it. What would, throw us all out? Yeah. I, I do think if that were to happen, it, I would want there to be as much unity as possible oh, yeah. around that decision. Because there if there are any be. divisions yeah. about yeah. whether to turn the cameras on <laughs> and someone does it, it's going to be pretty bad because then we're going to see those divisions open out in public and right. the White House that basically delivers a win for the White House because they've now divided the press corps yeah. over this issue. And um, but that all, would not be good for the so press the, corps. The, the one thing is the, uh, is the cell phones. But the other, if all the networks just agreed we're going to turn the cameras on. Yeah. Um, they they'd either have to end the briefing or just uh, it would or cancel all briefings. Yeah, and, and would... think about the image that that would produce. Uh, Sarah Sanders or Sean Spicer walking out of the press briefing because uh, their cameras on. I mean, that would be a disaster. <laughs> Absolutely. For them, that would be yeah. a, an unmitigated disaster. Right. Um, speaking of unmitigated disasters, let's talk about the health care bill. <laughs> 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 um, you know. Um, Vice President uh, Trump, uh, toward the uh, the weekend, uh, this is before maybe he knew about uh, John McCain's surgery, uh, expressing, as the president did, confidence that this is going to be the week. That's going president to Trump and I are confident when the time comes as early as next week that Republicans and Senate are going to come together and they're going to move this bill forward. And President Trump took it a little bit further. He not only said he's confident that the Senate's going to be the, do the right thing, he almost like warned the Republicans, right, that they'd better do the right thing or else. Where does this stand now? Well, the vote's not happening this week because John McCain had eye surgery and now he's back in Arizona recuperating and it's not clear when he's going to come back to Washington. And the way the vote count is right now, two Republican senators are opposed. That gives them 50 votes for. Minus McCain, that's 49. They don't have the votes to move it forward. So... This it's I would say it's completely uncertain how this moves forward because we don't know when Senator McCain is going to make it back to town. And also, McCain is one of the few senators who was undecided on this. So it's not as if his, as if his vote was guaranteed in the first place. So there's right. a lot of balls in the air right now. Not really clear what the path forward is. What's it, what's it mean for the White House? Well, it means that the, the sales pitch uh, is going to get more difficult for them because they need to make sure that opponents of this bill aren't going to amass momentum to prevent or convince these holdout senators from voting against the bill and announcing coming out against it. Uh, there's going to be a huge you know, battle of you know, public relations this week. Uh, we're going to see, I think, a lot of mobilization against this bill. So the White House needs to come up with a strategy with leaders in Congress on the Republican side to thwart that momentum. And it's not clear... Uh, really what the plan is at this point. How um, involved is Trump himself in this, um, you know, in the negotiations or in the efforts to, or even in the substance? I guess in both, the substance and the process. Well, he's, he's calling Republican <laughs> senators and, and asking for their votes. So, so there yeah. is uh, movement going on behind the scenes. Uh, he's trying to twist some arms, getting on the phone with these senators. But one thing that we saw President Obama do 
during the Obamacare push that we're not seeing President Trump do is get out on the road, go to swing states, and sell this plan. The one talking point that Republicans have had on this plan is, this is what we promised to our voters, so let's go ahead and do it. They're really not talking about what the plan does and any of the specifics. And we're not hearing President Trump really talk about that either. We're talking, it's going to make healthcare great. It's good, you know, the current system is bad. That's about all we're getting. Uh, and that, I think, goes to show how unpopular this bill is and, and also the fact that the president is not really comfortable talking about uh, policy specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we, we're not seeing this, uh, the president uses bully pulpit to, to push this bill forward. Um, if it goes down, uh, is this a major policy loss for Trump? Absolutely. Yeah, this is the one, the first major legislative initiative he decided to take up with Republican leaders in Congress. And if it goes down, you know, it has major implications for tax reform, too. It will have a ripple effect because Republicans in Congress are counting on some of the tax savings from Obamacare repeal to go help pay for those tax cuts. So now, if that doesn't happen, they're going to have to go to their their voters and say, well, we're going to blow a massive hole in the budget because we're going to have all these tax cuts and they're not going to be paid for. And that's a tough sell for not only a lot of voters, but a lot of conservative budget hawks in Congress. So, uh, again, but again, this is far from over. So yeah, I, I don't want right. to I don't yeah. want to give off the impression that uh, it you know McCain's out. No vote this week that this thing is dead. I, it's very much alive. No, uh, yeah. absolutely. We n- none of us know exactly where that how that thing's going to going to play out. I mean. I thought it was dead in the house. We all thought it was dead in the house, and then Paul Ryan was able to resurrect it and get a bill out of the house. Uh, first time around, failed in the Senate. They never brought it to a vote. Um, but Mitch McConnell may be able to resurrect it too. Yeah, and Bill, like you've you've seen these big legislative fights play out before. Once if this thing gets past the Senate, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. The momentum's going to pick up. There's going to be tremendous pressure on the House to True. pass the Senate bill. And put this on the president's desk. So uh, we're at, we're at a very pivotal moment here uh, in in this legislative fight. Right. Um, Jordan Fabian with us from the Hill, thehill.com. dot uh, com. Check it out for uh, the best coverage of what's happening uh, at the White House or in the Congress. Uh, and then on Tuesdays, you can also check out my column on the Hill <laughs> Hill dot com. Uh, uh, the they would as much as they would love to have the Russian issue go away. Um, this doesn't seem to want to happen. You and I have sat in that briefing room how many times and heard Sean Spicer and Sarah Huckabee Sanders say there was no, there's, this is a nothing burger, there's nothing to talk about because there never were any meetings between any of the Trump organization and anybody connected with Russia. They said that countless times, and it obviously <laughs> turned out to be untrue. And this is a problem for them because, again, this is their credibility is, is being questioned. Uh, even though the, the, they, bring, they bring in this new lawyer over the weekend, Ty Cobb, who's supposed to be, uh, yeah. you know, getting this back on the track. And, you know, th- this is the problem that you, A, have a president who is reluctant to listen to his lawyers. Stop tweeting. Don't talk about this. That hasn't happened. And th- th- to the point about this claim about no meetings – that meeting happened at a point in time in the Trump campaign when there was a shoestring staff. They were they were flying by the seat of their pants, and you know what I heard from sources is that there's this like dark period in the Trump campaign when no one, all these new people who are coming in, 
they don't really know everything that happened. Mm. So if they want to declare like there was no collusion, there was no meetings, there's very few people who really know that. Mm. And that's a problem for them. It really right. is remarkable how much different this campaign was run than anything else. I mean, like a lot of people, most people didn't even think that Trump was going to win. Right. And so he kept it very, 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 very tight, very close. And those are the only people who know what actually happened. And you're right. Like once they won, it was like, oh, crap, we have to actually staff up and get people in here and actually have to run this like a political operation instead of, you know, a boardroom. And there's so much stuff that just people weren't yeah. around for. They didn't know. Yeah. yeah. And that's a really again, for a lawyer, that's a really scary proposition yeah. because. Right. You know, I'm thinking if you're a lawyer and you go to talk to your client about something that happened, you ask your client, tell me everything that happened so I know, so I'm not going to be blindsided by some crazy stuff. So, and, and I don't think there's very very many people who can actually say what happened. Right. It's really so, a problem. So we've seen that Jared Kushner has lawyered up. In fact, I had a conversation with his, with his lawyer, Abby Lowell. Uh, Jared Kushner has, I mean, I'm sorry, Jared, um, Donald Trump Jr. has lawyers representing him. Donald Trump, the president, had Mark Kasowitz. Now, then he brought in Jay Sekulow. Now it seems like Kasowitz is out of favor, so he's brought in Ty Cobb. What does all this mean, all this lawyering up? Well, it means the investigation is becoming more serious with more people getting lawyers. But <coughs> as far as the implications for the White House, it, it makes life difficult for a lot of staffers there. Uh, there's a lot of pressure from lawyers to not talk about anything Russia-related, so there's limited communication. And when you're trying to advance a policy agenda and you have a bunch of staffers who are worried about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing that might get them into legal trouble, it's going to cause a lot of miscommunication, distrust. You know, I talked to some, some folks over there mm -hmm. for a story last week that I did about this very issue. And a lot of them were even just reluctant to talk even on background on, on what they're doing to handle this Russia thing because they're so afraid that if they say something, they might need to handle a lawyer. And for someone who's a junior or mid-level staffer in the White House who's making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, they can't afford an Abby Lowell. They can't afford right. a you yeah. know a, a, a Mark Kasowitz type lawyer who's going to command these high legal fees. So there's a lot of there's a lot of concern there. I think especially among the, the junior mid-level staffers about how how this is playing out. Right. So the the goalposts have changed. The goal, at first it was. There was uh, how dare you uh, insinuate or suggest that there were any meetings because there were no meetings at all. Now we're in a different, uh, different ballpark, I guess, which is yes, there were meetings, but now we're getting into the excuse. One of them is in Jay Secular. We heard all of these from him over the weekend. Uh, in fact, that the, the first one he gets two 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 of his excuses in at one time here. Um, we didn't break any laws, Jay Sekulow. The meeting in and of itself, of course, as I've said before, is not a violation of the law, but I think it's important to understand that as counsel to the president, the president was not aware of the meeting and did not participate in it. So, yeah, there was a meeting, but it was not illegal, and the president didn't know about it. Yeah, again, like you said, the goalposts keep changing. And, uh, again, someone like Jay Sekulow, who was brought on in a late stage, Who's to say that he knows that for sure? I, it's it's a it's a question worth asking. So uh, I, I think at a, the point in time when this Don Jr. story came out on Saturday, you know we saw the the Russia the Russia revelations kind of petering out a little bit. I think some people thought that this might yeah. be losing some steam, yeah. and then this big thing comes out, and you know who's to say if there's there's not other emails like that floating out there in the 
in the cloud or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's it, no, no one can really say when this is going to end. Right. And so um, the uh, and I'll say this, you don't have to say this, but also the, the, his Jay Sekulow's <laughs> statement that the president says he didn't know about the meeting. Therefore, we have to believe the president did not know about the meeting. Yeah, but this is a president who has said a lot of things that turned out not to be true. So I think one could understandably, maybe not automatically, accept what the president says on this meeting as the absolute truth. Remember when the president sent Sean Spicer out the day after the inauguration to yeah. say that- this this nonsense about crowd sizes? Mm-hmm. And people said at the time, this is very bad, not just because it was wrong, but because there's going to become a time when you're going to need to believe the word of the president during a right. major crisis. And, and and we're seeing this right now. This is this is the consequence. Is right. when you you know when you blow your credibility and you need pe- when you need people to listen to you, they're not going to listen to you. Right. And, and the White House always comes back and says, "Oh, well, you know, the media lies, the media lies. They yeah. still, I mean, to this day bring up the the Martin Luther King bust that that a pool reporter said was out of the White House or was out of the Oval Office when it had not, which was a bad, bad move and was and has been apologized for and corrected and corrected immediately. immediately. And there's a big difference between a screw up like that, which is a screw up and knowingly, willingly going out and telling things that, you know, are not true. Yes. So, Jay Sekulow, when I come back, this is the latest, the latest uh, uh, way of dealing with this meeting is blaming the Secret Service. I've wondered why the, the, the Secret Service, if this was nefarious, why did the Secret Service allow these people in? The president had Secret Service protection at that point. How low can you go, right, almost? And the Secret Service had to come out with a statement yesterday and say, no, Donald Trump Jr. was not under protection <laughs> at the time, and we would not have cleared anyone who yeah. met with him. Right. So... Oh, it's on the C- CNN showing right now. Uh, oh. right now yeah. uh, so, again, it, you know, it's look, what they're trying to do is deflect attention away from the actions of the president and his confidants there. If you recall last week, they said, oh, well, Loretta Lynch signed off on her visa. So uh, it was really the implication is, oh, it's the Obama administration's fault that she was right. in there. Yeah. Oh, and maybe, you know, throwing this kind of plant the seed in people's heads. Maybe this was an Obama effort to entrap the president, which is obviously <laughs> ridiculous. But um, this is how they're—they they kind of plant these little things out there to, to deflect, detract, and deflect from the storyline. Uh, um, uh, yeah, and I mean the idea that you would blame the people whose who, whose whole existence and job is to take a bullet for the president and and blame them for for this meeting is pretty pretty low. Uh, but um, uh, that also shows, I think, maybe how desperate they are to get over this. Um, but this is not going to go away, is it? I mean, no. I think this, these email chain gave <laughs> special counsel Robert Mueller and the congressional investigators a lot of string to chase down. And that's going to take a very long time. And last week, too, uh, we learned that the digital operation of the campaign led by Jared Kushner is now under scrutiny for maybe there, there's uh, questions about whether. They coordinated with these Russian hackers and bots to plant fake news. So that's another string for them to chase down. So these are just all that kinds digital of digital operation that Jared Kushner was in charge of, right? Correct. Yeah. So uh, you know, Brad Parscale, the head of that, was is might might testify before the House Intelligence Committee. So the the point is that there are all of these strings that's floating out there that investigators need to chase down. And that's going to take months, 
And so right. this is not going to go away anytime soon. And all of that gets in the way of whatever legislative agenda, whether it's completing health care or getting into tax reform or budget, That's true. whatever else. That's yeah. true. And, and as long as it, you know, if it damages the president's standing, then you know he's going to be a president who doesn't have a ton of political capital at a time when he needs it most. Well, all we know is that if there's a briefing on camera or off camera, you're going to be there giving him hell or at least, no, not just doing your job and asking <laughs> tough questions. Doing your job <laughs> is giving him hell. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan Fabian, great to see you, my friend. Right, Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, don't forget, follow Jordan and uh, all of our other good friends at The Hill at thehill.com. We'll be right back with Steve Shepard from Politico, um, the man who knows more about politics than anybody else I know. We'll be right back. They can call it a fishing expedition. They can call it a witch hunt. It's all an aligned message with the White House. But nonetheless, real evidence is coming forward that just can't be ignored. Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Here we go now on a Monday, Monday, July 17, uh, the Bill Press Show. We are in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., in our studio in Capitol Hill. Coming to you live uh, out on uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. On WCPT, out in Chicagoland, and on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, where we're brought to you today by the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, all five unions going together, forming what they now call the Smart Union. Uh, Putting in a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, you bet. Check out their website at smart-union.org under the leadership of President uh, Joseph Sellers. So, yep, President Obama waking up over the weekend to the ABC Wash Post poll showing him now uh, at 36 percent approval rating down from 42 percent in April. And the president tweeting out, hey, not too bad. Uh, Stephen Shepard, editor for the Politico Caucus and the chief polling editor for Politico. Good day to come in, Steve. Nice to see you. Uh, how bad is it? Well, it, or it's, how it's, good is it? It's it's not as good as as he's trying to make, to make it out to be. First of all, he's trying to round up. Uh, you noticed he said it was at almost forty percent. Yeah, almost. Uh, well, thirty six percent. You know, That's if you're a rounding, generous round. If you're rounding by tens, sure. <laughs> but if you're rounding by fives, you're at thirty five. He's closer to the thir- to a third than he is to two fifths. Um, if we're doing it fractions. sounds like the way I used to keep scoring golf. <laughs> By the way, we were just talking about playing golf, right? You know, there you, you go. You, you know. Just shave off a stroke here or there, yeah, which right. is which is also how I hear uh, President Trump keeps scoring golf. So, yeah. uh, supposedly from the people who've played with him. Um, look, it, no, it's 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 not good. Uh, the ABC Washington Post poll, uh, both outlets clearly laid out where other presidents have been at this six month mark, which we're going to hit later this week uh, on Thursday is the the twentieth. Um, the only one who was really anywhere near this was Gerald Ford. And Gerald Ford, of course, wasn't elected president. He wasn't even elected vice president. Uh, and, and, you know, he came in during this really, really tumultuous time, not someone who came in winning the Electoral College, taking uh, unified control of Washington with Republicans controlling both chambers of Congress, uh, and with, with seemingly the ability to implement his agenda that's not what we've seen. And, and, and the fact that he is so unpopular, I, I would uh, commend to folks uh, 
just about an hour and a half ago, they released a couple of other questions from that survey about what do people really not like about President Trump? And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of what you would think. It's not necessarily the, the policies um, to the extent he has them uh, and he's articulated them. It is really uh, his personality, uh, his tweeting, um, the insults, the things that, that really have characterized uh, the first six months of this presidency um, from a stylistic standpoint. Really? So um, that that that. It's coming through, right? As they say, like, the tweets don't matter or the insults don't matter. This is just who he is. It does matter, I guess, is what you're saying. It does matter. Uh, and, and look, I think it's decreased the amount of political capital he's had. You know, and all the talk about uh, trying to get, obviously, we're putting this on a shelf for, for a week or two, but trying to get uh, a health care law through first the House and, and now in the Senate, Donald, President Trump isn't really part of that process. Um, he's not the one. He has brought them up to to the White House a couple of times. But when you're talking about trying to get uh, senators on the fence like Dean Heller uh, to yes, that's not coming from the White House right now. That That's mm. coming more. You saw they deployed uh, Mike Pence and Tom Price to talk right. to the nation's governors, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, who, who for the most part, by, by oppose the way, this proposal. Reports are that that was a disaster. Yeah, that, it, that it's not going Disaster well. of a meeting. But you're not seeing you're not seeing uh, the kind of public pressure uh, from President Trump because he doesn't have that political capital. Because in a lot of ways, he may have, or at least over the first six months, maybe squandering it through some of these sort of more personal, pettier uh, feuds that he's had. Right. Um, in his tweet about uh, bragging about uh, the 40 percent poll numbers being not bad, he also said that the Washington Post ABC poll <laughs> was one of the least reputable and um, the, the polls and pro- proved totally wrong in 2016. Right. It showed uh, Hillary Clinton leading by four points in a four way race, three points in a three in a two way race. Rather, um, obviously, she won by two. That's pretty close. <laughs> that, that is uh, certainly acceptable, certainly in line with uh, all the other public polling that showed uh, Hillary Clinton ahead between one and five points. She won by a little more than two. Uh, uh, certainly, certainly well within the mainstream. So, I, you know, there, there were some gyrations in the months leading up to the final uh, right before the election. But he said right before the election in his tweet. And, and, and obviously that's not true. Right. But that is, would you say that that 36 uh, percent is represents his base that is just solid no matter what happens and no matter what he does? That's a good question. And that's something that I uh, wondered about really since uh, for the past two years, going back to uh, his entry into the into the campaign. Um, who are the people who would really stick with him no matter what? Uh, when you slice that down and you ask about people who strongly approve, you only get down to about a quarter. Um, so there's only about 10 percent of the of, of, of Americans are in this area where they just somewhat approve of the job he's doing. He is polarizing. Um, you know, look, I, I think when you say a quarter, you mean 25, 25 percent strongly approve of the job he's doing as president. That is his really, really true base. But he does have this ability to grow beyond that. People who voted for him, who don't really love what he's doing so far, but would vote for him again if, if, if the election were held today. Um, people who are open to his ability to change Washington to fix or, or, or continue uh, the economic growth that we've seen over the past seven years or so. Um, that, that group of people is gets him a little bit wider out. Now, 
the things that, that threaten that are his inability to get anything done in Washington. We've seen nothing really out of Congress. Um, and if health care falters in the next three to four weeks, uh, that's going to continue. Um, Russia. That is, uh, if there is more evidence of his campaign's either willingness or actual, um, uh, I don't want to use the word collusion because it's become sort of a cliche by now, but 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 if there's more there, uh, that threatens that group of people. And those are the voters that he's going to need uh, as we go into 2018 to help Republicans keep control, particularly of the House, which is which is more in danger than the Senate. Well, you know, we certainly are fascinated uh, uh, by the whole Russian question here in Washington, D.C., in the media, print and electronic, spending a lot of time on it. But I I keep we keep hearing from Republicans, particularly the American people don't give a damn. The American people don't care about this. They're not talking about it. They're not thinking about it. I hear that all the time. I heard it yesterday on CNN from a Republican member of Congress. Is that true? I, I'm not sure. I think that's an over-exaggeration. Um, look, I, you know what I would compare it to to some degree, um, at least for for that sort of midsection of voters that, that I'm kind of talking about, the, the soft Trump supporters, uh, the people who maybe voted for him and, and are dissatisfied so far but are, but are still holding out hope for him. Uh, is that it just the steady drumbeat tends to drown out anything that else that happens in 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 the administration. It's kind of like what what happened, obviously, in the campaign with Hillary Clinton and her emails. You hear about it every day and every day. And it just makes you uh, it's just distasteful. It 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 turns you off. It um, it does suck. up it the makes oxygen. You, sucks up the oxygen. It makes it impossible for them to move past it. Uh, and it, And it makes it so that there's this sort of lingering distrust. And I think that's the obviously absent the um, actual evidence that they got together, talked about how Russians had hacked the Democratic National Committee and had hacked uh, John Podesta's personal email account and were planning to distribute it. And this is when it's going to happen. Absent uh, uh, evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and, and Russia the re- uh, on those specific matters, the real danger here is sort of the slow bleed. And I think that's what we're seeing over the first six months here. And given the special prosecutor and given, obviously, the willingness, at least in, in among uh, for Donald Trump Jr., to take part in something that might look like that, uh, as evidenced by the email exchange that was released a week ago, it, it doesn't seem like that's going to stop anytime soon. Right. The drip, drip, drip looks like it will continue. Right. right. And, that, and that drowns out uh, really anything else that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so many of these... Drip drips keep bringing us closer to the Kremlin, almost right to, to, to more evidence of meetings or or more people at the meetings or the evidence of from the emails about what the meeting was was all about. Uh, so, how I was back to this um, base again. How many of are you able to determine what percentage of Trump's vote was? For president was for Trump or and what percentage was just against Hillary because they didn't like Hillary? Well, that's actually a question that they asked in the exit poll. And uh, if we take a break, I'll be able to check the the precise numbers. But but I I think it was somewhere around. um, I I believe the majority actually uh, were saying they were were voting against Hillary Clinton. That wasn't a wide majority. I think it was close to 55, 45. That's what I thought. Against Clinton and 45 percent for Trump. And so if you're talking about 45 percent of 46 percent. Um, you really do then get down to close to that 20% to 25%. And that, that's kind of 
the people who were really, really with him so far. Uh, I, look, the one thing that you can say here is that his favorable rating on election day was 35 percent. He won some vote. He won a, a, a wide majority of the. There was about 17 percent of the electorate that viewed both candidates unfavorably. He won those voters overwhelmingly. He might win them again today or a lot of them again today if the election were held again today. They could right. do it again. But what you can say is after six months, they're not exactly satisfied with what they're seeing out of, out of President Trump in the White but House. But it's significant if, um, if, a, if more people, if, if most of the people whose votes you got voted for you, not because they liked you, but because they didn't like your opponent. Right. And that, was that al- doesn't give you a very strong base. Yeah, that was person. always going to be a, a challenge for him. Yeah. Um, to to <laughs> when you when you have people who voted for you uh-huh. who don't like you, and and who really just hated the other person more, that was always going to be a, a really particular challenge. Uh, both candidates were either candidate was going to come in with really historically low favorable ratings for a a victor in the presidential election. Um, but this is he clearly has done nothing to grow that. Um, now, far, part of that is the opposition he's faced, but right. um, part of that is is a lot of the personal stuff that that has turned off those voters who who took a flyer on him. Um, some of whom might regret it, some of whom might not, but uh, uh, really haven't seen anything in the first six months to make them more encouraged. Which does raise the question uh, that I'm often asked, and I will ask you. So, uh, from what you know, and I guess a little bit of a opinion here. Would Bernie Sanders have beat Donald Trump? Um, you know, look, I think the, the campaign, the campaign, no, the campaign plays out in a very, very different way. Um, the kinds of attacks uh, the, are probably more focused on ideology. They're probably less gendered. Uh, but there's no doubt that, that Donald, it's not like Donald Trump's going to be any less aggressive on the campaign trail against Bernie Sanders. Those attacks look different. Um, it's an entirely different campaign. Uh, I, you know, so- I, socialist, communist, yes, been along those, yes, yeah. it's it's a right. lot. It's probably uh, a lot more fear mongering. Um, you know, with Hillary Clinton, the, the fear was that somehow the White House was going to be for sale, and and she was yeah. crooked. Um, in this case, it's it would probably be a bit darker. Um, you know, I don't. But at the same time, Bernie would have been speaking. He, he certainly would have been campaigning. In Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania, maybe that is true. Ohio. That is and, true. And he I would don't... have been, he would have been there with an economic populist message, yeah. which was a winning message for Donald Trump. So. Yeah, no. I, look, I mean, it's a trade-off. He doesn't win the kinds of, uh, in some cases, traditionally Republican suburban educated voters that Hillary Clinton uh, siphoned away. Um, the the question is, is how many states did that deliver her? She did great yeah. in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia suburbs, and it wasn't enough. Um, you know, is that does that change the electoral map? Look, we'll never know. I'm, yeah. I'm, this is All my right. artful way of dodging your question. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. OK, now uh, we, we want you to know that, of course, uh, the real reason uh, that we were so excited that you were coming in today uh, is not to talk about Donald Trump at all. We really want to know, OK, uh, how much should we fear Kid Rock? <laughs> oh, man. Look, uh, you know, <laughs> Debbie Stabenow's running for reelection. Uh, in a state that that Donald Trump carried, she's one of ten Democrats uh, who are up in 2018 in uh, states that Trump won. Um, but she's also running in uh, the state that Trump won most narrowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you compare her to, say, Bob Casey in Pennsylvania uh, or Sherrod Brown in Ohio, uh, both of whom neighbor there, uh, those are states that um, Pennsylvania only won 
a little bit more narrowly for uh, for uh, Donald Trump while uh, Trump won Ohio by a wide margin. Um, look, you know, there's certainly but, no. I mean, should we take him seriously? Uh, look, at all? I, I think. Well, I think that's also a a highly gendered campaign if it were to take place. I I, I don't at this point. I think you know, uh, certainly there's a model for celebrities to run for office that that maybe didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, two yeah. years ago. Um, but you know, I, until uh, he's willing to do the work and 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 pound the pavement on the campaign trail. Uh, even Donald Trump had to do that, had to go kiss the, the Republican rings. Uh, Kid Rock will have to go up to Mackinac Island for <laughs> to meet uh, with all those yeah. donors and and <laughs> and sit on the, the, the portico of the Grand Hotel there and, uh, and, and and deal with sort of the genteel Republicans uh, who make up the establishment, um, uh, you know, until he's shown a willingness to do that in Michigan. Um, you know, I, I, I do think I will say yep. this, though, outside of. Maybe Fred Upton, Michigan Republicans, they're far more focused on keeping the governor's mansion, it seems like, than defeating Debbie Stabenow. Uh, Rick Snyder is is term limited this year or next year, rather. Hmm. So they are searching for a candidate right now. For um, governor. For Senate. Oh, for Senate. For Senate. They have some Uh, some candidates for governor. The attorney general is going to run for governor. The lieutenant governor is probably going to run for governor. Um, The question here is. Is, can they come up with somebody? You'll, you'll recall six years ago, uh, Pete Hoekstra was sort of the best that they could do, and, and he he lost uh, handily. Now, 2012 was a really good Democratic year. 2018 may be a really good Democratic year. We don't know yet. Um, but Pete Hoekstra wa- lost handily. Uh, they didn't really challenge Stabenow in any real way. Um, so when you look at those 10, 10 Democrats who are in Trump states, she might be the safest. Uh, but we'll see what, what Kid Rock has his 15 days between coming out with this material and actually having to file legal paperwork with the Federal Election Commission. Let's see what happens. Right. Uh, and Donald Trump had a little more personal wealth, right, than uh, Kid Rock. I'm not sure what Kid Rock is worth. I haven't uh, I haven't looked into uh, – I'm right. not I'm not a Kid Rock fan, so I, I can't I can't yeah. speak to that. But, uh, I mean, I think I think at this point – Probably not in the billionaire class. So. According, to Probably Google, according to Google, which would Uh-oh. never, ever, ever be wrong, <laughs> no. he's worth $80 million. Oh, well, I mean, if he was willing to put his entire personal fortune into a statewide campaign, uh, he could probably campaign if he self-funded entirely. He could probably get away with between 30 and 50 million um, to to run it, to run it through the general election. He's Um, a fool if he spends. You don't spend half your net worth. Right. right. That would be crazy. Okay. On on challenging an incumbent senator when so few incumbents. All right, lose. but speaking of celebrities, uh, Peter, your story about uh, the latest uh, to Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner is saying that she is not ruling out a run in California, and she would run as a Republican for for Senate against Diane, Diane Feinstein. Feinstein. Uh, assuming that Diane runs for re-election yeah. or running for Senate, whoever Democratic nominee or candidate would be. Yeah. And again, you know, celebrity, the one thing she's got going for her, right, is. She would be a, a sort of an odd choice. But I will say this about Republicans in California. They need people desperately because they are in danger they here. They nobody. They are right. in danger here of being shut out in the primary in the governor's race. Um, and then yeah. and then potentially you know, between were... between Gavin Newsom, Antonio Villaraigosa, um, uh John Chang, all these Democrats who are getting into the governor's race, if the Democrats have the top two in the June primary, when you get to November, all of these Republicans, your Daryl Ices, 
um, all of Dana Rohrbacher, all these uh, Mimi, uh, Mimi Walters, yeah. all these uh, folks who are running, um, Jeff Denham. If there's no Republican at the top of the ticket, Republican voters might not come out. And yeah. that's a huge danger for Republicans majority in the House of Representatives here in Washington is if Republicans get shut out in the top two in both governor and Senate and don't have serious candidates in each. Right. And the last time around for Senate, there was no Republican right. in the runoff. Now, whether was, whether uh, Caitlyn Jenner would bring Kamala out some Harris of those, versus uh, um, Loretta Sanchez, uh, Loretta Sanchez. Yeah. whether whether you would see culturally conservative voters come out to vote for Caitlyn Jenner at the top of the ticket. We, we can debate whether that's actually good for those vulnerable House Republicans. Um, but the reality is, is they need somebody. And if they get shut out, both top statewide races in 2018, uh, that's a huge problem. Yeah. You mentioned in the Senate, um, there so many, the 10 Democrats, yeah. Donald, who are up for reelection, running in states that Donald Trump right. carried. And one Republican running in a Clinton state. Right. Dean Heller. Uh, Dean Heller. Yeah. Um, on the, in the House, um, are there similar districts where... Uh, either Republicans, d- Democrats are, are, are running and are involved in seats where Donald Trump won or Republicans running in seats where Hillary won. Yeah, there's about two dozen uh, Republicans up in Hillary Clinton districts. Hmm. Um, and then about uh, half that, uh, half that number of Democrats in uh, Trump districts. Right. Um, certainly so I if, would if, imagine those Republicans then are particular right, targets. And, and I believe six or seven of them are in California, <laughs> which is which is why that's such a huge danger that Republican turnout could be depressed on Election Day if yeah, they don't have yeah. a, actually any candidates uh, at the top of the ticket. So, um, you know, it, it would be enough barely, I think, by one uh, if Democrats held all of their seats and won all mm-hmm. of the um, Clinton seats. Uh, the danger here, though, is if Donald Trump is at 36 percent or at 40 percent, as the Bloomberg poll would suggest today, uh, approval rating. What we've seen in past midterm elections is that's a pretty darn good predictor of uh, how the president's party is going to do in that midterm. Which is and and that would be poorly if, if poorly. it were yeah. if it were 36 or 40 percent. Um, you know, if they want to feel good about the House, uh, they among among people who actually turn out to vote, he needs to be about 44 percent. I think 43 percent. Um, among actual election day voters in 2018. Now we've got a long way to go. Right. I don't make. <laughs> yeah. I'm hesitant to make predictions in July of the election year, let alone July of the off year. But uh, right now, he he has a lot of work to do to improve his political standing, and for Republicans to feel good about being able to to keep control of both chambers of Congress uh, in January of 2019. But historically, a president, Republican or Democrat, in the first midterm election loses seats. Loses seats. Right? Yes. Yeah. George W. Bush is an exception, but that was sort of the 9/11. Mm. Uh, dynamic still and the run up the ramp up to the war in Iraq in, in late t- 2002 um, but yeah no by and large uh, and president's in, party loses seats and interestingly both um, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama Democrats one big factor in their loss of seats in the first midterms was health care yes yes and a big push toward big right one plans. one which one which one failed, failed and one, one which, which succeeded passed, but in yeah. both cases electorally Right. They spent they spent their political capital. And now you're seeing Republicans do the same, do the same thing with, um, you know, I would say at this point. Limited, um, uh, probably slightly a little a tick under 50 50 uh, odds of success. Uh, That that gets me to this. uh, Your your story that you had this week about um, Republican voters 
telling Republicans, keep going on repealing Obamacare, <laughs> right? So that's what their base wants? Yeah, two-thirds of uh, Republican voters told us a political morning consult poll last week uh, that they want Republicans to keep trying to, to repeal and replace Obamacare and not to move on to other issues. Uh, that is what their base wants. The problem is, is that Democrats and independents want them to move on. Um, so they're torn, as we've known for some time, between a base that is hungry for this and the overall electorate, which is uh, dissatisfied. And that tension is playing out right now uh, in the Senate. That's why you have Susan Collins and O. That's why you have Dean Heller and Rob Portman and Shelley Moore Capito uh, and a couple other senators Lisa right Murkowski, now. Lisa Murkowski, too. yeah, unwilling to at least to, to sign on just yet. Now, whether buying them an extra two weeks is good or bad for that effort, I tend to think it's probably bad, but you know, we'll see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks. They do have this sort of artificial, you know, with, with Senator McCain's uh, illness and procedure, they do have a little bit more time, but sometimes uh, time is your enemy. Which is probably going to be for, for McCain two weeks rather than one week. It, looks, it certainly looks that way, which gets us to August. Uh, the Senate has already said they'd stay in for the first two weeks of August. The House is leaving, but they'll come back uh, if something does come out of the Senate uh, to vote on it. But then we may be back where we were uh, in the spring with, with trying to get uh, something through the House. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they seem to be under the impression that if they don't repeal, their base is just going to turn on them and whatever. I mean, you know, they, we promise to do this, so we have to do it. Um, that, that's exactly right. We we gave you guys the yeah. House in 2010. We gave you guys the Senate in 2014. Yeah. We gave you the presidency in 2016, and nothing happened. Right. I'll say, man, I'm telling you. It <laughs> is so much fun. Rock uh, keeping, a hard place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Keeping up with it with you, uh, Stephen. Stephen Shepard at Politico, politico.com. Thanks so much for coming in. All right. Enjoy the rest of your summer. You too. All right. We'll catch up with you soon. And now the rest of the day is all yours. Make the most of it. But don't forget, come back and see us again tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.